hello, you're listening to the Fixed Pleasant Podcast. This is not the first episode of 2018, nor is it going out in January, but Happy New Year anyway. Here are some books that we're interested in reading. Hello listeners, welcome to another episode of Fixed Pleasant, and this is the first episode of 2018. Um, and I've been joined by Josh. Hello. And Ree. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So... This is going to be something a bit different from what we usually do. Our, our, our standard approach is to cover novels, but we do read more novels than we um, than, than we record for. So this is probably going to be a sort of uh, maybe a regular episode format of what we're reading, uh, where we'll talk about the things that we've just read or we're about to read or anticipating reading. And um, maybe we'll also talk about some other stuff, you know, like role-playing games. Uh, so, Reed, what have you read recently? Well, recently I've been reading two books. One was a Christmas present, and it's What Makes This Book So Great by Joe Walton. So that's a non-fiction collection of chapters, originally from a blog, some of which have been collected in this um, paperback edition is what I have. And um, it discusses, the author discusses various classics of science fiction and fantasy and basically what makes them so good. That's one of two books that I've been reading. I've just finished reading Heriot by Margaret Mahi, which was quite a late Mahi. And I know that we've discussed the changeover by her on earlier episodes of this podcast. What's, uh, so what date is that one? It's a twin, I want to say, 2012. I did look it up before I came out. It's quite late. It's not posthumous, but it's only a few years before she died. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So those are the two books that I've been reading. Um, They're both interesting in their own way. The first one, the non-fiction one, is something that um, was actually given to me by Liz, who's appeared on this podcast. Yep. And um, if it wasn't for this podcast, I might not be so interested in the idea of thoughts that people have had about books. Why is this book really good? I've, it's got lots of chapters on um, all sorts of classics of um, books. You've got any examples there you'll pick out? Yeah, so... I've recently got about, um, I'd say about a third of the way through where um, Joe Walton spends a long time on the Lois McMaster Bujold series, um, which is quite a long series of books about Mars for Corsigan and really unpacking where you should start this series, what might be good entry points, um, what the different books in the series are trying to do and how successful they are at doing them. So that's quite a long link set of chapters about a particular author in this case but Bujold but a lot of the chapters are just about a individual book I've been concentrating on the ones um, about books I've read so uh, from Herring to Marmalade the perfect plot of Dick Gently's holistic Dirk Gently's holistic detective agency is one of the chapters it's a different kind of classic and for dissecting science fiction and fantasy and, and classics then Obviously, we've, we've got the science fiction and fantasy encyclopedia, but that tends to be sort of, it is an encyclopedia, it's much more dry, and that, that my impression of that, um, 
from I haven't read it, but from what I understand is it's it's a lot more you know, reader focused, I guess, and uh, talks about what's good about it. Yes, I mean, obviously, these things are subjective, and sometimes one might disagree. But I think this is quite a friendly way of talking about books that one expects people to have read. So it's not unpicking them in detail and discursively the way that a more academic book might. It's sort of like a friend wanting to talk to you about the book and share the enjoyment of the book. And I guess if it's from a a blog format, then it's going to have that amount of accessibility as well because it's going to have a a regular assumed readership and to appeal to a certain kind of reader. And in fact, the author in the foreword says um, that it was encouraged these posts were made as part of a community discourse and if you'd like to join in on that um uh, she is still reading the blog po- the blog comments so you're welcome to come along and um continue to discuss that with her how many books does it cover well there are 130 chapters most of them are about an individual book or a couple of books by the same author and a few are more generalist and it's mostly science fiction and fantasy but there's a um there's a chapter what a pity she couldn't have single-handedly invented science fiction george Eliot's middlemarch discussing why george Eliot wasn't a science fiction author uh. Um, you said it's about 130. It's not a massive book, so that's got to be about three or four pages per entry on average, maybe? Yeah, on average. It's a very dip-in, dip-outable book. Yeah, so it's it's not like it's going to be a slog. Excellent. Well, I know that we've got a copy because it's, uh, it's upstairs, so I, I will probably dip into that at some point. It's got great cover, too. Very cleverly done. Yeah, and Liz is a massive fan of Jo Walton as well, and she's been uh, recommending it. And Jo Walton is herself, we should say, a Hugo and Nebula award-winning author of, among others, and um, has a lot of great books of her own. Yeah. So that was um, that was uh, What Makes This Book So Great by Jo Walton. The other one is Herit by Margaret Mahi. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I am a fantastic admirer of Margaret Mahes. I think she is an amazing author. She's a YA author who's also written junior and middle grade fiction and picture books. Um, she was an author of great longevity. Some of my favourite books of hers were written in the 1980s and 1990s, but she continued writing. Um, I believe she uh, died in 2014, so not that long ago. And she wrote some of my all-time favourite YA novels like The Changeover and The Tricksters and other lesser-known but equally um, interesting ones. But this book, Harriet, I really didn't connect with. Um, I was reading it sort of for completism's sake and just in case I turned out to love it. But it doesn't have a lot of the qualities with which I associate with Mahi. It has a... I read another reviewer described it as languid, a very languid quality. And I also heard the phrase drifty interiority, which I think could have been applied very well to this book, though that wasn't what the person was What do you think that means? Well, 
This is a book that has all the essential ingredients for a quite dramatic fantasy. It's got kings, it's got magicians, it's got secret guilds, it has a revenge quest, it has uh, fights, it has politics, it has lots of kind of great fantasy ingredients. But the way that it puts them together is a kind of dreamlike thing thoughtful but kind of disassociated style of writing. It reminded me a little bit of Tepper's uh, Maven many-shaped novels and a little bit of early Le Guin with a kind of quasi-mythic quality. But it's not at all the kind of writing that I associate with Mahi who I've always thought of as having very vividly real characters, very connected to their own stories. Totally. In the Mahi that I've read, it, it sounds, it is nothing like that. And one of the people that, that springs to mind of that description um, might be Lord Dunsany, for example, mm. King of Elfland's daughter in that. Um, I'm now intrigued to, to maybe read it at some point. Um, but I've got a big part of it to read otherwise. Well, this is the thing. It's been sitting on my to-read pile for a long time, and I've been trying to clear some of those books, which is why I came to it. And if you are a Mahi fan and you're interested in reading it for completism, or alternatively, if you're really into Tepper's Maven Many Shapes stuff and you might want to try something a bit in that area then have a go. But otherwise, I wouldn't really recommend it, I'm sorry to say. Read no. The Tricksters instead. Well, I, I think that's a, all the changeover, yeah? <laughs> yeah, or, or The Haunting, or Alchemy, or Underrunners, or 24 Hours. There's plenty of great Mahi out there. It's interesting you talk, the, what you're talking about, that, that it's... I have been thinking about different styles of fantasy recently, and that is possibly as far... It sounds like it's very far removed from what we consider the modern fantasy of um, Scott Lynch and Joe Crombie and George R. R. Martin, this sort of gritty realism with... Uh, but it, but then you talked about the sort of all the plot elements there, which could be just out of those kinds of books. I would say that the characters in this book think a bit more philosophically than your average George R. R. Martin character. I think there is something in there and there's some very, I think, careful, thoughtful writing about some of the pressures of being a person in a fantasy society. But it certainly doesn't have that modern kind of visceral modern blood thing. Mm. Which may be appealing to some people. I mean, I I don't care for that that style personally. I'm I read a bit of Scott Lynch and I enjoyed it to a certain extent, but actually that isn't my thing either. So I think it can go too far. I think when you're churning through a long series, especially in fantasy, whatever it is, you can get tired of it. And I find. I find quite a lot of sort of torture exhausting. I don't enjoy reading it. I don't connect with it. So mm. um, I would prefer my fantasy realistic, but not um, reveling. Mm. That's fair enough. All right. So just to recap, that um, sounds like two thumbs up for the Joe Walton and a sort of meh for Margaret Mahi 
which you say you're, you're only part way through. Is that right? No, I have actually um, just finished it. Oh, you just finished it, right. Okay, so Margaret Mahi for Die Hard fans otherwise looked to, uh, look to the tricksters or the changeover or her other earlier works, is what you're saying? Yeah, that's right, I'm afraid to say. All right, cool. Josh, what are you reading at the moment? So, I am reading two books as, as well. <laughs> the first is Nine Fox Gambit, a science fiction book by Yoon Ha Lee. And the other one is The Tale of the Axe, a non-fiction book about the Neolithic Revolution in Britain by David Miles. Cool. So tell us about the first one. Yeah, we will do. Um, so Nine Fox Gambit is a really weird science fiction book. Um, it's a star-spanning empire-type setup. Um, the character is trying to put down a revolt in this... Uh, massive star-spanning empire um, but it is very unusual in a number of ways um, firstly it has this kind of weird I guess you might say quasi-caste system it's like a cross between castes and departments of government I guess um, so characters seem to have get assigned to these groups um, and the main character is a Kel who are the military uh, caste Kel Cherith, uh, and each cast has got its own unique personality and quirks, and they all distrust and hate each other, and so on. Um, but the the really uh, interesting thing is the the tech, uh, which resembles magic uh, in a lot of ways, but not in a kind of it doesn't feel like magic. It just does things that magic could do. So they have this weird thing called the calendar. Uh, which is literally a calendar. It's how they measure time, but also a kind of set of cultural norms. And by having these cultural norms, they enable what they call exotic technologies, which seem to be kind of like magic. Um, and uh, rather like, um, say, Mage the Ascension, role-playing game, uh, where everyone's got a different paradigm, different bits of the empire at times revolt by adopting a heretical calendar which as well as requiring them to be put down um, fucks up the exotic technology in interesting ways um, I'm only about halfway into it so I'm not quite certain how all these themes are going to play out but it is it's just very unusual and interesting and kind of disorienting because of the they don't, they don't come out and kind of um uh, they don't use exposition that much, so you kind of have to run to catch up to work out what on earth all this stuff means. Uh, the other interesting bit of tech they've got is the Black Cradle, which uh, appears to contain exactly two individuals who are quote-unquote undead. Um, they're characters who've been kind of put away for life or, or for eternity, um, and they come into the book in interesting ways. So it's a very unusual, um, interesting science fiction setting in quite an enjoyable book brilliant yeah I, I i think the i like the sound of something with minimal exposition so that you you actually get i assume then you get what you want from the dialogue uh yeah i mean you, you don't need to know about all this tech to follow the story but there are moments where you as a as a role player and a fan of sci-fi I'm sort of sitting there itching to know what this stuff is and what it does because it's clearly very important 
Um, and it's only over the course of the book that you really get to grips with it and understand. I still don't understand, so um, I guess that might be a lie. Maybe you never do. <laughs> well, still, it sounds really intriguing. I love the I love the sound of the uh, multiple arms of an empire, all with different perspectives on the time and the calendar, and maybe at odds with each other. And that, that puts me in mind also of um, Ancillary Justice, uh, which is uh, one leader who's been cloned many single many times and has um, is a, essentially at war with itself. It, it very much made me think of that too. And indeed, it has a quote recommending it by Anne Leckie on the back. So I guess that's as good a recommendation as any. Well, yeah. What, what more do you need, really? Josh, you said you were really enjoying it. What is it particularly that you enjoy about it? Uh, slightly spoilery look away now if you um, d- uh, don't want that but um, the, so the Black Cradle contains this what the back of the book calls an undead tactician basically the most brilliant and amoral general that has ever lived um, and he, um, he's sought, his advice is sought after during the course of the book um, by effectively downloading him into the brain of the main character um, that makes for some really interesting story there's a kind of ongoing dialogue between the main character and this guy uh, who he's been kind of locked in the fridge for a thousand years so he doesn't know certain things but he also has vast knowledge because he's immortal um she's way more junior than she should be for the role she's in and totally out of her depth um, but also quite clever um and they just interact in really interesting ways. There's there's great politics. Um, uh, I don't know. It's it's just it's a very gripping book. It's good good pacing. Those do sound like really interesting ideas. I will check this book out. Cool. Okay. So that's your fiction. You said you're reading something non-fiction as well. Yeah, I've nearly finished this book, actually. I'm just in the last chapter. It's called The Tale of the Axe. How the Neolithic Revolution Transformed Britain. Um its title is a bit misleading. It's, I get the sense that maybe the book was written and then the publicist said, hey, your, your title's not gra- grabby enough, let's call it something else. Um, and then they maybe re- rewrote it a bit. It hasn't got as much axe in it as you would think. Um, but it's a nice, uh, not too techy, quite well-written and enjoyable uh, story of the British, the prehistoric Britain from, uh, I guess you would say, about a million years ago. No, that can't be right. Um, well, it does. It, it touches on humans' lives a million years ago. But for Britain, I guess it's more 10,000 years ago? I don't know. Um, through to end of the Iron Age. But with a big focus on the Neolithic period, which is about 4,000 BC through to 2,500 BC, I think. Well done. I was going to quiz you on that. (laughs) Um, So the reason I'm interested in this is, of course, I am thinking of writing a game about the Neolithic period. Um, It's a really interesting period of time because uh, people are just starting to become kind of civilised, if you like. You know, they're picking up farming, they're starting to settle down, but... Not everybody will have done, of course. There are going to be some people who are still hunter-gathering. Some of the land has been cleared, 
but there's still a massive wild wood that could be full of interesting things. And Neolithic peoples did really, really weird things, like burying people under their house, um, or building gigantic uh, earthworks that appear to be designed to defend against something coming out of the middle of it. Uh, and other weird things like that that just scream, turn me into a fantasy game. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm planning on doing. Um, anyway, it's a, if you're interested in the Stone Age, it's a really good read. Cool. So that is... The Tale of the Axe by David Miles. Ralph, what have you been reading? What have I been reading? Um, well, I was expecting to say I've just finished Gun With Occasional Music for our first recording, but that's because I expected us to be doing this a few weeks earlier. But I can't not mention it because it's so absolutely brilliant. Um, it's a book by Jonathan Lethem, and it's basically a gumshoe detective novel set in an alternate world where... There's a heavy emphasis on bioengineering um, with effectively uplifting animals who, um, they, they called it uh, evolution. So they evolved animals. So they actually have um, intelligent sheep and an intelligent kangaroo and various other characters who turn up. And also doing the same to, ch- to babies where they effectively accelerate the baby's uh, mental development so they end up in uh, at a very young age, trapped in a very small body, um, but with more or less a fully developed mind, and they call them baby heads. Uh, they're all bald. It's pretty, yeah. It's, it's pretty horrific. And there are other things. It's, it's this nightmarish dystopian world. Um, everyone ha- there's a, there's a state um, provided makery or makeries make is this uh, it's basically uh, a powder that everyone snorts totally legal and also it has a number of different ingredients and you'll have your own personal blend that the point of view character who's talking in the first person has his own personal blend which uh, he talks it's got a certain amount of forgetol and a certain amount of regretol and mostly it's made of addictol and uh, and there are but there are a number of different um, flavors and um, and effects that you get from it and it's a mood altering drug that's highly addictive uh, and dispensed freely to the whole populace and the third thing that really makes it kind of uh, really makes it kind of dystopian is the um, there is no police force instead there's an inquisition now it's a police force in name but effectively these are Plain, I think they're plain clothes characters who can wander around basically solving crimes the way the police do. But what they also do is they can adjust a person's karma. So everyone carries a sort of credit card which has your karma rating on it. And if they see you, if they judge that you have um, transgressed in some way, they'll dock you karma points. As your karma goes down, you're closer and closer to being in trouble. Shades of uh, Cory Doctorow and Charlie Brooker there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's like you you get to zero karma and you're basically you're done. You're you're headed for the freezer. When people are punished, they're basically put into a a cryogenic sleep, 
and they they will wake up later. Uh, but it's it's not particularly pleasant being frozen because, of course, whilst you're frozen and the rest of your life moves on, um, you get more out of touch with the world, etc. Um, and also people who are frozen by some legal means, they can be dug out and given a slave box on their head, which means that they essentially become a programmable zombie to do menial work, including sex work. I mean, it's all, it's pretty grim. I wish you could see my expression. I think my eyebrows just disappeared into my hairline. It is brilliantly written, though. It's, it's, um, it's written in what you would say would be, uh, it's emulating, um, uh, the Sam Spade novels, that sort of thing. Uh, it's got a it's got a very snappy a snappy dialogue from the between the character and the antagonists and also the character's internal monologue is exactly what you'd expect of that genre. So and it's a lot of fun. It's not long, um, terrific to read, uh, and yeah, it's the the world is richly painted, uh, and um, you get a strong sense that of this is an internally consistent world, but just very, very wrong and unpleasant. And, um, you know, the, the, uh, as, as the story goes on, it's also clear that the powers that be are putting tighter and tighter control on the populace, um, through drugs and through licensing and the control of karma and all, all these sorts of things. But, that's kind of this is all happening in the background the main thing is it's a detective story about someone is murdered and uh, the private eye is a character who won't give up despite both the authorities and criminals putting obstacles in his way and telling him no no you should leave this alone so good fun really great writer so that's one thing and the other thing the thing I most recently finished is Ubiquicity which is collected a, a collection of short stories uh, edited by Todd Foley, um, who has been on this podcast before in our Jeff Vandermeer Annihilation episode. Now, Todd put together a bunch of authors who would talk about a shared world, which is essentially a, a post-cyberpunk city where we have all of the what would be the modern trappings of the cyberpunk ideology um, taken into a 21st in, into the context of what we would now think of as cyberpunk. So it includes artificial intelligence, obviously, uh, which was obviously that's not new. Um, augmented reality is a big thing, so that there's uh, the way that people are perceived can be changed, and they they can put um, they can project certain images. There's one character who, who appears as a uh, horribly tentacled octopus and there are other characters who um, appear in similarly strange ways uh, like a mermaid or something but actually they're just walking around as normal people and there's this layer of aug augmented reality over over them that they can all perceive and there are the other trappings like uh, corporate control uh, of uh, of the city of resources of information um, and corporate interests there's things to do with natural disasters. Um, there's the criminal underclass and the difference between the wealthy and the uh, and, and and the poor. Uh, and there are other aspects, including uh, selective breeding, grooming certain characters to 
excel in certain parts of the city and certain parts of society because they have certain talents and they are uh, for that they are abducted from an early age and put in a sort of creche of people who like them uh, so that they can um, in later life bring their talents to bear for the good of humanity etc etc a lot of this which is is easily extrapolated from what we would uh, if you're a cyberpunk fan then it's not out of step with any of the stuff that we're familiar with but there are a couple of things that are very interesting uh, to do with the role of artificial intelligence the role of corporations and corporate responsibility to the environment and that sort of thing that that's quite interesting as well um it sounds like a fantastic idea for a collection. I'm really interested in this, a sort of thieves' world for the 21st century. Exactly like thieves' world, yes. And I was actually picking up my copy of thieves' world uh, recently. I thought, oh, this has put me in mind of something else I need to reread. But the the other thing about Ubiquicity is it is a transmedia project. So there's this collection of stories, but also there's going to be, oh, there might already be a systemless setting for this for role players because. It is, uh, Todd Foley is a role-playing author, and this is marketed towards role-playing fans as much as SF fans. So um, I think this, this sort of, I don't know how they, I don't know how they put this together. Um, I assume they all agreed on a set of principles and then took parts of the world that they built together and extrapolated it in the direction they chose. Any but, names we might have heard of? Well, a lot of them are... Uh, there are a lot of new authors, and, and I haven't heard of um, many or any. Um, Nico Carcosa, Anthony Copeland... Let me just get my... Let me just get my... Um, While you're getting the list out, I'll briefly mention a book I've only just started, but a book called Imaginary Cities by Darren Anderson, which is a really interesting concept for a book about cities in fiction. And there's so much work that can be done in the city, not the current city, the imagined science fiction city. I think we've got a copy of that on our shelf. Yeah. yeah, the idea of a city as something seen from lots of different points of view, which is, I know, work that you've done in games, Ralph. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, uh, there's a there's a book called City by Paul Smith, which is really great, and then you know the the two Spyro Kostov novels, uh, not novels, and um, uh, non fiction books. Oh yes, the um, city shaped uh, and. and- the city assembled. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, and then there's the things like Italo Calvino's uh, Invisible Cities as well. Yes, which I assume that this the name of that city is a um, the title of that book is maybe an allusion to. Yeah, I'm sure it's a homage. Yeah. and then that fantastic um, China Millville book, um, the City in the City. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, right. List of list of authors. Right in. Uh, so you may recognise these or you may not. Um, Nico Carcosa, Anthony M. Copeland, Todd Davis, Todd Foley, Diana Nippling, S.L. Koch, Sharon Lewitt, Adrian McCauley, T. Reynolds, and, and that's it. Right. I yeah. don't recognise any of those names, I'm trying yes. to say. Some of them are poets, some of them are blog authors, 
Um, some are also published authors and um, have published a few, or in some cases, many books. So, so yeah, Ubiquacity is good fun, not particularly long. I enjoyed, I enjoyed going through it, and I a couple of the stories that really stood out included the swoosh, which covers a, um, a corporate presence and its relationship to a natural disaster, and the uh, is it the Maldives or Mauritius? I can't remember, but but something that's happening to the the immigrant population from an island that's basically slowly sinking. Uh, that's that that one I really enjoyed. Um, anyway, so that's it. That's Ubiquacity, which is collected by Todd Foley. So we've each talked about the books that we've just read. And what's the next book you really fancy sinking your teeth into? I've remembered a book that I am really quite interested in reading, and I, the only reason that I haven't yet is the size of the existing to read pile but maybe I deserve reading this it's The Refrigerator Monologues by Catherine M. Valente I don't know whether or not you've heard of that at all Um, oh yes I remember what the problem is that it's not actually currently available in the UK and I keep waiting for it to be or deciding whether or not I want to um, ship it from the States Basically, it's a collection of linked stories from the points of view of the wives and girlfriends of superheroes, female heroes, <laughs> and anyone who's ever been refrigerated, comic book women who have been killed or assaulted or brainwashed, driven mad, disabled, or had their powers taken away so that a male character's storyline will progress. Wow. So it's a sort of what the idea is exploring is kind of superheroes are our new fairy tales and the kind of twisted brutality of the stories that underline those so that's a book I'm quite excited to read and um yeah I've been reminded in looking at it on my list um my problem is that it's not actually available in paperback yet in the UK and um, I'm trying not to buy hardbacks and it's also unfortunately not available in Kindle edition but if you were a lucky US listener then get you out there and get yourself your refrigerator monologues because it sounds fantastic I want to watch so the last thing I want to ask is gaming plans what are you planning to play in the near future so I am currently running a, a campaign of Blades in the Dark John Harper's game of uh, let me see if I can get this right. Uh, gangs of scoundrels trying to make it big in an industrial fantasy city. Um, it's uh, I've had like one full session of it so far, so I think it still counts as planning to play. Um, it's pretty good. It uh, basically rips off uh, Leverage's idea of using flashbacks to skip out the planning phase so that whenever you need to have planned something you just flash back to when you were planning it and then suddenly you know bring it in um which is quite good um but my group who are used to planning things out in great detail have not quite got the hang of it yet i don't think yeah i I had exactly the same problem when i i i ran the it was like version five of the quick start part way through the kickstarter and had exactly the same trouble it took a bit of mental recalibration from the characters saying you don't have to plan everything all the way through I, I guess the thematic of fictional times and things like Scott Lynch Lives of Lock Lamora well he does mention that in the um, 
in the book as an inspiration, even though he himself has never read it, which is quite funny. He also mentions Peaky Blinders, which I um, watched uh, as research for the game, only to discover that it was nothing like the game, but so fantastic that I didn't mind. The most obvious influence I can think is Thief the Dark Project, the um, sort of 1997 computer game, which is probably the only reason I would continue to own a Windows PC. Excellent oh, game. I heard that it was inspired by a computer game. Um, my computer game knowledge is quite weak. I, it doesn't really have a computer gamey feel to me, to be honest with you. It is very much a sort of uh, team game um, about building up your crew over time. Um, that doesn't feel like computer gamey to me, but it's, um, it's, it's enjoyable, if a little bit over-mechanical for me for my liking. Um, I'm used to quite light games and this game has just enough rules that I find myself forgetting them at key moments. Yeah, I, I like the idea of having a, a, a playbook that's shared amongst the party and things like that. There are a lot of very interesting things that have been mechanised, but I think it's a bit too much. I know if Becky were here, she might mention that she is in fact working on a game where you have a shared playbook for um, the pack of werewolves that you play um, it's going to be called Fight Me um, I've played that game, it's very good yes, everyone who's played this has said it's really good everyone, watch this space, it's going to be great um, but yeah, Blades in the Dark is immensely popular so I guess I can't knock it too hard um, I'm also planning to play more of my game that I'm working on which is called Flotsam um, a game about renegades misfits and outcasts living in the belly of a space station um, it's a GM-less game, but well, it's more GM-full. Everyone gets to be a GM for one chunk of the world, and it's kind of focused on intense interpersonal relationships between the characters living in this difficult situation. Um, I ran it at our club, our local club recently, and uh, I now have a group of people volunteering to play it outside of club, which I guess means it must have gone quite well. But I'm very much looking to play it, not just because it's my own game, but I, I just really enjoy a game where I get to get deep into a character and also exercise the fun of being a GM some of the time. That's that's kind of my ideal style of play. Awesome. Bri, are you playing anything? Well, I am a little bit stuck in my role-playing game writing, and this relates a little bit to computer games because um, I've run all sorts of different kinds of game and I've been trying to create a game which gives me the kind of feeling I get from some of the computer games I really enjoy playing. So these are games like Tropico, in yeah. which you're the dictate, the presidente of a small um, tropical paradise. And uh, I've also been playing Creativeverse, which is kind of Minecraft clone. And... Um, a little bit of a game called Cities Skylines, which is a, a very um, city-building, road-building type game. And um, also a game which, oh, I forget the title of it because it's a sort of inheritor from an earlier game, but basically Pl Planet Base was the name of the earlier game. And the idea is domes of space colony um, with different um, inhabitants. And what all of these games have in common, though expressed in slightly different ways, is they're all computer games about resource gathering and resource use. And I don't think I've ever really been in a, ever in a game which sort of 
took on that kind of board game element of the collection of resources, board game, computer game, the idea that as a group of potentially maybe explorers of a new planet or of a new environment that you can collect and collectively use resources. Um, I was in a game where we were new arrivals on a planet which Martin Hornsey ran, which had some of those ideas. Right. But um, it wasn't hugely resource focused for some somehow in my head i'm really interested in the idea of a group of players being able to amass a little stack of different kinds of resources and discuss as a group how they will use them to further their experiences in this world but whenever i try to write this game i'm having difficulty figuring out how to link the narrative to the the feeling i want you to have as a player well, I think I think that's like everyone has that problem, right? <laughs> Funnily enough, Blades in the Dark is such a game. It's not quite as resource focused as it sounds like you want, but um, you do have this kind of shared gathering of, of group experience, which you can use to buy group upgrades that make everybody better at stuff. Um, you have a stash of, of gold that you use to buy awesome equipment or enhance your den or buy kind of lackeys to work for you. Um, so it does have a sort of resource building sort of attitude, if not quite the kind of exploratory feel that it sounds like you might be wanting to go for. Yeah, I want a sense of exploration, also maybe a sense of alchemy, the idea of putting resources together in new ways to discover new things that you can do. But um, that took me down a route of many, many lookup tables, which is it's interesting, but I still haven't got the key ingredient for this game. I think if you wanted to do, to get that kind of thing where where you were forced to use resources like gather them and then use them, um, and you, but you wanted a fairly simple freeform game, I suppose you'd want to gather your resource and then be able to spend it to enhance a move or something or a role, um, a bit like carrying plus one forward to get or. or Opening up new results, uh, opening up new available results in a uh, in a an apocalypse world style move. I know this is, some of this is probably not going to mean much to you, Ray, but it's it, but it's that's the way I think you might be able to do it. But um, you've got to you've got to find a way of feeding those those resources that you gathered back into the game to generate more stuff. I think one of the things that interests me is the idea of a game in which you can be ambitious individually, but also a certain amount of community agreement is required. So resources are collected by the community, but individuals may have a greater or lesser role to play in collecting them, and a greater or lesser say, a strong feeling about how those resources are used. Do you want to take yourself in a more technological direction, a more biological direction? the things that determine the character of your group culture and I like a role-playing party sometimes where I feel that they're working together but also each each um, having an individual uh, purpose to bring to that including potentially a sneaky purpose yeah I must say this sounds like a really great game and I can definitely understand the itch you're trying to scratch there um, I'm not sure how you make it so that it's better 
better than the computer game that you've enjoyed playing. And the only way I can think that that's going to work is if the resources you're collecting are sufficiently sort of non-mechanical in nature that you get to exercise real creativity within the fictional world to use them in ways that the game author may not have anticipated. That's my fear, actually. No matter how many lookup tables you might have, a creative party always thinks of new things to do. And as a GM, you can find yourself outside the boundaries of your own scaffolding. But oh, that's the kind of gaming I like, Ree. What's the point in playing if the party don't surprise you? <laughs> I like to feel I'm more than one hop ahead of the party. <laughs> no, I, I like the party to and me to be on exactly the same page as each other. <laughs> well, that's a stylistic thing as well, isn't it? How much in control of the game do you as a GM want to feel? Do you want to be right in the centre of the game, playing it and discovering it along with the players? Or do you want to feel more godlike and have uh, a much more distant control? Speaking personally... I want the players to feel that they can they can propose ideas and express themselves, and I'm not going to shut them down, so they're free to do that. Um, but I do like to feel a certain amount of control, if only that I, I have a good idea about where everything is going and, uh, and that I have an idea about what to do next. So it doesn't have to be that it conforms to an art plot, but it does have to... Um, I do have to feel in tune with everything such that I say the characters are taking this action I have these options to apply to them um, for the next move and most of the time that's what I do have and interestingly that is the kind of thing that I think Apocalypse World has done very well um, is the proposal of uh, MC reactions and MC moves and things to do to make the players' lives more interesting. As long as you feel in control in that sense, then I think I, I have a better, jo a better time as a ref. I think what I look for mostly is player engagement and player enjoyment. And I like to have as much control, I suppose, as in my writing, in that I like to feel that I know where I think those things can come from for the reader or for the player that I have an idea about how to give them that. Mm -hmm. But if they are engaging and enjoying themselves in a way I didn't anticipate, that's great too. Yeah, I don't think the two are incompatible at all. So It's interesting. I, it's interesting you mentioned Apocalypse World, Ralph, because um, Apocalypse World and its children have completely indoctrinated me now. Um, I am entirely bought into the play-to-find-out philosophy and I, I, I kind of know where things are going in the game but frequently find myself surprised by my players and they push things in a completely random direction and I like that. It's great. I get as much of a surprise and um, uh, uh, unexpected things happening to me as the players do, I hope. That is good. I would say that I've played, not by not by the name, but I have played something that's played to find out in that you subordinate yourself to the PC's wishes. Uh, and that's the way I think I've played for a long time. And yes, in, in sort of in the early days, it was more sort of point to point stuff. But most games I know are like that. The difference is the boundary conditions. So 
uh, uh, the uh, an OSR game that say point crawl or a hex crawl has totally allows for player agency. The only pro- the only problem is it seems to be bounded within a certain environment, but that doesn't preclude the players from surprising the GM. What's an OSR game, Ralph? Uh, old school Renaissance is sort of D and D by another name. It is kind of I I find it interesting, although um, I think. It's interesting what it's become now. Uh, I wasn't interested so much in the earlier versions of it. Played it for a bit of fun, but I do think that the is the quality of some of the materials that are coming out is really terrific uh, because of the support it gives to the GM and the interesting and random options that may come out. So you talk about being surprised. That's one of the things that the OSR does. It's the, the literature surprises the table rather than the players. So maybe, yes, there is a difference there. And we could, I guess, debate that another time because we're coming quite close to time. So what are you planning to play, Ralph? I'm coming to the end of writing Stormhack, which is basically white hack stroke black hack stroke Stormbringer first edition from the 80s um, so the the idea is it's an OSR Stormbringer that has the characters all deriving their power essentially from demons and but uh, really focusing on what the demons are and the that they demons are the source of all power all heroic deeds all magic etc and of course, then demons have a form and they have a price. They can transgress against society and against the character. And so the idea just is that this, it's essentially the levels aren't applied to the characters. They're applied to the demons. And you could play a perfectly functional character with no high level demons who is just a bit good. You could also play a character with a high level demon, which will solve a lot of problems and demonstrate a lot of power and cause an awful lot of trouble at the same time. Uh, and, and that's basically the idea I've got. Um, still fleshing it out, but I think it's getting there. Um, and in terms of mechanics, it's kind of half of it is old school Renaissance stuff and half of it is all the apocalypse world, um, a partial success, full success and uh, MC reactions and moves. So it's uh, it's moved away from being just sort of uh, a pure D and D like uh, into something that I'm I feel a bit more comfortable with and a bit more interested to run. So that's what I'm doing. But the heart of it is you know Michael Warcock, Eternal Champion, Elric, Stormbringer, as interpreted by Chaosium in the eighties, because the Chaosium interpretation is kind of dodgy in terms of how well it lines up with. Um, uh, it, it's kind of dodgy in terms of how well it lines up with the fiction, but um, I still love the role-playing game. I still think uh, uh, Stormbringer 1st Edition is one of the most interesting fantasy games, it, and it's incredibly refreshing compared to the alternatives, which at the time were D&D, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, and RuneQuest. So, anyway, I'll do that some other time, and I'll, I'm going to hopefully run that soon. 
Oh, the other thing I fancy, I've had a whole load of books appear from Kickstarters and various things. I've had a Las Vegas, finally. Um, I've got Cthulhu Dark, which I really fancy running Cthulhu Dark um, you, with Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation as a setting. And I fancy doing that maybe at Concrete Cow, but I'll see if I get everything together by then. And the other thing I've recently acquired is Dungeon Crawl Classics, but that's so absurdly big, I can't actually imagine me getting around to running it anytime soon. But it's a beautiful book, so just really enjoying reading that. A cat has arrived over here. A cat has arrived. He's getting a good waffling. Hello, Mr. Cat. I think we're coming close to the close. So, it's not really going to be any final words this time, is there? Because well, there's no, not been one single piece of fiction we've got to talk about. Does anyone want to say anything uh, to the microphone whilst you've got the opportunity. Um, here's something I think. It's been really interesting to hear what other people have been reading and some solid recommendations came out of that. Um, it was also interesting that I haven't read any of the books that either of you have mentioned and I think that it would have led to an interesting discussion if we had happened to um, have that coincidence so as you do more of these it would be interesting to see um, what books it turns out everyone's read. Well, maybe we'll find that people will start reading books that were recommended in an earlier episode so we can revisit them. Yeah, well, my Mahi um, read had a bit of a link to an earlier episode, because if I, we hadn't discussed Changeover, I might not have thought I'd best get on and um, actually read that Mahi. Cool. Okay, then I think that's our episode. So I'm going to say thanks very much, Free, for being on the podcast. You're welcome. And thank you, Josh. Yes. Fantastic. And that's it. See you next time. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you've got comments, we'd love to hear them. We're on the web and on social media. Details at victorplasm.net. Until next time, bye.